This recording has been produced by Christchurch, Jerusalem. For more information, visit us at cmj-israel.org. Fortunately for all of us, a big crowd, the um, passage we're going to speak about is uh, very short. It's a passage from the book of Acts. It doesn't get preached on very often, and uh, Tabitha, or Dorcas, gets uh, easily ignored. Uh, unfortunately, for all of us, it's a very complex subject. There's something very deep and important that lies behind this simple story. But isn't that the case with most of the Bible? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, um, we indeed, we come to you. And Lord, we ask that we'll be renewed and refreshed and challenged at the reading and preaching of your word. Lord, again, we ask that you'll have mercy upon our weaknesses and our imperfections. Lord, our um, tendency to disobey, our desire, Lord, to do things our way. Lord, we pray that uh, your grace will overcome these and challenge each one of us. In the mighty name of Jesus, we ask. Amen. So we are in the Easter season still uh, in our tradition. Uh, Easter is five, or depending on the calendar, five or six or seven. Uh, there's five or five to seven Sundays uh, in the Easter season before we get to Pentecost and then uh, to Trinity Sunday. And uh, I like this tradition very much because it keeps us focused on the message of the resurrection uh, and the message of, um, of, of the early church, especially uh, in the book of Acts. And I would like um, to just, again, as I said, speak for a few minutes uh, about the story of Dorcas and Tabitha. Also like to compare it to the um, story that comes next. And I don't think it's an accident that these two stories come right together. Uh, the story of Cornelius, we're not gonna go into the whole long, um, uh, all the details of that story, but there's something that uh, ties Dorcas or Tabitha with Cornelius, something that um, you might say unites them. And uh, this is what we wanna look at, but I wanna start just for a minute by looking at Revelation chapter six, because I think it's, uh, uh, very relevant for us. Uh, most of our teaching and preaching in the church, uh, you have two extremes when it comes to revelation. Extreme number one, that's so scary and that's so frightening and I'm not sure what any of that means so it doesn't get preached on. Extreme number two is that's all about the future and uh, these are things that are gonna happen Maybe they're happening right now in our generation. Maybe they're not. Uh, and therefore, the book of Revelation um, is an indication of uh, future events. And, and I think in both of those arguments, uh, there's certainly some truth. The book of Revelation is difficult. And the book of Revelation does uh, foretell, you might say, some events that will happen in the future. On the other hand, it is God's word. 
It is guidance and direction and instruction, and we should be reading it and studying it and applying it to our lives today and not waiting for something to happen to the, in the future. We, in our passage, we, we read about the, the four horsemen, uh, and these four horsemen um, really represent four different things uh, that bring horror and fright uh, really to, to just about every, every human being or, or every uh, mature human being. They bring, uh, there is the, uh, a horse that represents, uh, a rider that represents conquest, and one that represents violence, one that represents uh, economic insecurity, and of course, there's the rider that represented death. Now, these are not only things that will happen in the future, but these are things that have been happening to the human family uh, from the very beginning. Uh, and of course, the um, message for us today, no matter what we, how we interpret the book of Revelation for the future, the message for us today, surely, is it not, that the world system, yes, the values of this world, the spirit of the age, any age, does not provide security from these things. Yes, they're not going to keep us safe. They uh, are going to fail us over and over and over again. And why is it that we have more faith in the Bank of America or the Federal Reserve or the, the Bank of England, Wall Street? Yes, the, stock, the, the Berlin stock market than we have in God. Yes, and actually his economy and his way of doing things. And at the end of the chapter in uh, 617, it says, who can stand? Who's going to survive these things? And it's not talking about going to Montana and getting a bunch of dried beans, <clears throat> you know, and a, a thousand guns. It's actually talking about who's going to remain faithful and true to God in the midst of all this, uh, the, the, of this disintegration or this uncertainty or this death. Now, surely many of us don't relate to this very easily because we live in a place of prosperity and security. But dear, dear friends, most of the world does not live in that same place. And these things, we, uh, we must, uh, they have to be confronted, for example, in Syria or Iraq on almost a daily basis. And so who can stand? Who's going to remain faithful? Who's going to maintain God's perspective? And how do you maintain God's perspective? This is, we see in, by the way, the next chapter. We're redeemed by the Lamb. We're redeemed by the Lamb. And being redeemed by the Lamb, hopefully, is the beginning of a process that gives us a whole new way of looking at the world. Because the one who's coming to save us is not uh, a Google billionaire or, or, or Mark of uh, Facebook, you know his name. Um, it's not a government with their army. It's not the, all the billions of dollars that are in reserve in the Chinese central bank. Yes, who comes to save us is but a lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. 
And it's by coming into that understanding that we come into a new orientation of the world. And that's why I want to talk about these two stories. Because these two stories, uh, first starting with Dorcas or Tabitha and then going to Cornelius, actually hopefully should teach us something and should help us to maintain this reorientation, which is counterintuitive and it doesn't make sense in the world's eyes. But my dear friends, it may not make sense in the world's eyes, but the world and its system is failing us and continues to fail us, yet we love it. <clears throat> we somehow think it's benign. It's not benign. It can be dangerous if we're not careful. And it could subvert us, okay? And to divert our loyalty away from Jesus, okay, to, to something else. Now, it's none, by the way, it is not a bad thing. It is not wrong to want to be, have security. And it's not wrong to um, want to take care of ourselves. It's not wrong to want to have, <coughs> excuse me, some kind of financial stability for, uh, for ourselves and our families. This is, this is what it means to be human. You know, the question is, where do we get that from? Where does it derive from? Yes, again, from the world system and the world values, or do we actually look to God? And you know, a definition I would think uh, of idolatry is not, the danger isn't people worshiping little statues or paintings or whatever. The danger, especially in a somewhat Christianized society, even a nominal Christian, Christian society, is that we derive our security or our identity, but our security from things that are created and not from God himself. And, uh, and the story that we read first in the book of Acts, which is a sweet story, again, it gets overlooked. Sometimes the emphasis, the emphasis is often on the resurrection, and maybe that's why it's in the liturgy, uh, sorry, the lectionary at this time of the year. Jesus rose from the dead. Now Peter is doing miracles in the name of Jesus, uh, and the dead are being raised. Wonderful. But actually what's overlooked in the story, and perhaps what should be the most instructive for us, is the fact that Dorcas, or Tabitha, is generous and that she provides, we don't know if she's rich or not, but she provides for other widows, for those who are in need. Remember, there's no welfare system in these days. All right? There's no government pension. National insurance is, uh, isn't going to be sending you a check. Or in the American scheme of things, there are no food stamps. <clears throat> so widows are vulnerable, especially if they have a small family. And so here's Dorcas, she's providing for these people. Now, why does the miracle, why is that mentioned? What's the importance of that? Why is the next story about Cornelius? And the angel says to Cornelius, Cornelius, your charity, your almsgiving, your generosity, and your prayers have gone to God like a memorial meaning God is reminded of you. He sees what you're doing because of your generosity. 
And by the way, may I remind you that he wasn't a believer. He wasn't a Christian. We shouldn't even enter this debate whether God, does God hear the prayers of people who are not believers. God not only hears this man's prayers, but he's going to act on his behalf. And I believe that uh, like many people in the early church and even in the Reformation, listen to this, even John Calvin believed that in both instances, yes, God answers the prayers or God comes to the aid of Tabitha and Cornelius because of their generosity, okay? Because of their good works. And it doesn't matter whether it's, again, uh, certainly Arrhenius and Cyprian and the early church and John Calvin himself. And uh, this really, there is lying behind this, a Jewish idea, all right? A Jewish concept. We don't even realize it's Jewish. But in the time before Jesus, Jewish people uh, began reading this, well, they were always reading the scriptures, but they began to study the scriptures very seriously. And they began to think about the place of giving and charity and almsgiving. And surely it's had an impact on the Jewish people. Because uh, in my country, the United States, you know, the number one giving group, the most generous group in American society happens to be the Jewish community. And the, 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 the scripture that really spoke to everybody the scripture that intrigued everyone was Proverbs 19. And Proverbs 19 says that if you give to the poor, you loan to the Lord and he will repay you. And then people began to ask, well, how is God going to repay? Yes, how is God going to repay? Well, people understood that you have a heavenly bank account and that God is putting, yes, your reward or repaying your loan, yes, because you're giving to the poor as if it is a loan, although you don't expect them to return it. He's putting, he's repaying you with interest in that heavenly bank account. And certainly as we know the teachings of Jesus, Jesus talks about the heavenly bank account, does he not? And he tells us to store up treasures in heaven. Put them in this place where it's safe. You know, where the market doesn't go up and down and thieves can't break in to destroy. Keep money in that heavenly bank account. And both Tabitha and Cornelius are rich. And God has decided to reward them. And God rewards Tabitha by returning her to life. And God rewards Cornelius by bringing Cornelius, yes, uh, Peter, and filling him full of the Holy Spirit, which is, of course, the greatest reward that one could have. Now, I don't want you to think that we're talking about the prosperity gospel. We are not. The prosperity gospel is a distortion. Distortion, it's about being comfortable, it's about being prosperous, it's about being wealthy, and it leaves out sin and judgment and the need for redemption. It's all about some form of self-affirmation. But there is one corner of the prosperity gospel that is true, that God does reward those who are generous. 
Now that reward, and this is what the prosperity preachers get wrong, may be given to us in this lifetime, as in the case of Cornelius and Tabitha. But that reward may also be given to our children or our grandchildren. And that reward is certainly going to be given to us in heaven. And we don't know when God will reward us. And we don't know how God will reward us. This is not magic. Yes, I give God $10. Some people say he has to give me 100 I have faith and God has to honor my faith and do what I want. This is the distortion of this kind of teaching. Or I'm gonna, I'm, God's going to give me a blank check and I'm going to fill it in. And he's, because I have faith and I've said some words in the name of Jesus, he's going to have to do it for me. Nonsense. God has mercy on whom he has mercy. We can persuade God, but he never can be forced. But still, nonetheless, God looks upon generosity. He looks upon repentance. He looks upon humility. He looks upon giving, certainly with great uh, favor, and often moves in our lives, okay, when we express, the, when we do these things. Now, you're going to say to me, oh, this is works. You're just preaching works. And um, I'd like to say to you the following. Um, who is it that gives us the money to give to the poor? Where does that money come from, ultimately? Does it come from ourselves, or does it actually come from God? All we're doing is returning to God what he has given to us. We're not throwing it up in, the he in, the ev in heaven, but we're giving it in a, oftentimes, not always, it's not the only way to give, we're giving it in a very specific way. We're giving it in a way that helps him. And I'll come back to this point in just a minute. Because there's a close relationship between Jesus and the poor, as we read about in Matthew 25. Now, what are the benefits <clears throat> of being generous, especially being generous with our finances? But we could be generous with our time, Yes, we could be generous with our house. We could be generous with our car. And here I'm not talking about being foolish, but still being wise, yet still being, uh, still being generous, still being giving. And I'd like to just point out to you some of these, um, some of these. <clears throat> One, as I told you, we put money in our heavenly bank account, okay? We put money in our heavenly bank account. Uh, and again, there's nothing wrong with wanting a reward. There's nothing wrong with, with wanting God to meet our needs or the needs of our family. It's not uh, immoral. It's not, uh, I don't know, spiritually immature. It should never be our primary motive. Our primary motive to give should be one of love. We love Jesus. He gave to us. <clears throat> we want to give back to him. But still, nonetheless, we all have needs. And God, uh, and to have needs is what it means to be human. And certainly Jesus in the Gospels meets the needs of human beings. He heals the sick. He <clears throat> feeds the hungry. 
He drives out the demonic to free people. So we have to get over this notion sometimes that blocks us that if we, if we do something out of self-interest, it's somehow either immoral or doesn't count. It's not necessarily true. Could be true, but it's not necessarily true. And so um, we loan money to the Lord and we expect him to repay. We believe that he's going to repay. My dear friends, this is an act of faith. Is it not? It's an act of believing. It's not some work. Because if we give generously and even give sacrificially, and yet we expect God to, to repay, this is a way of saying, God, I have faith in you. And it's a very practical way of saying, I have faith in you. And it's a, even a harder way of saying, I have faith in you. Lots of people can say, I have faith, I have faith. Yeah, I believe, I believe. All right. Put your money where your mouth is. Yes? Put your money where your mouth is. Okay. Let me say, without faith, the book of Hebrews says in 11 chapter 6, it is impossible to please the Lord. Yes? It is impossible. Yes? Without faith. This is a form of believing. This is indeed an act of faith. And I would like to also stress that, secondly, that when we as a community, um, live in a way that's generous, and especially care for the poor, we're saying to the world system, we don't believe you. We don't believe you. You're wrong, and your values are wrong. It's a way of standing up and demonstrating or protesting. Actually, it's an act of rebellion. It's an act of rebellion. When I was um, a youngster, I had great hope for the hippie movement. Yes, I can remember it. You know, I know I look like I'm a youngster, but I'm really old. I mean, I remember Woodstock. Couldn't get there because didn't have enough money to, you know, whatever. I remember Woodstock. And I remember thinking, as, uh, thinking in 1970, 71, something's going to change. There's going to be a revolution. Society is going to be radically transformed. You could feel it. You could taste it. You could cut it with a chainsaw. It was so thick. Man, all those hippies with those really good values, you know, don't laugh. Back then it was really serious. Getting back to nature, rejecting, you know, the necktie, you know, in the corporate career, helping the poor. And guess what? All those hippies grew up and became just like their parents. <laughs> you know the old saying, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Some of you are young enough to remember that. <clears throat> Nothing changed. Yes, and the system that just continues generation after generation, it has a different facade, but it's the same system which is based on greed and insecurity and idolatry and fear and anxiety. And what, how, what, how wonderful it would be if we said no. What a witness it would be. Peter Brown, Peter Brown, who's a great, great church historian. Anybody ever read a book by Peter Brown? No? Nope. Yeah, I commend him come to you. The book he writes, one of, in one of his books, he says, the gospel, 
in the third century, he says it advances in the Roman Empire by leaps and bounds. He says there are two reasons for the growth of Christianity. And he's an authority, so I have to take him seriously. He says, one, because Christianity dealt with the demonic powers of darkness and the influence of the devil, which was widespread, you know, thanks to paganism and and, immorality. It could confront those forces of darkness and defeat them in the mighty name of Jesus because of the sacrifice and resurrection of Jesus. But two, he said, the church had an extensive... um, program would be the wrong word, made an extensive effort to help the poor. And this ignited, you might say, the imagination of many people throughout the empire. By the way, the empire, especially in many decades of the third century, was going through a terrible economic crisis. But even in the midst of scarcity, the Christian community was being generous. So living in a way that's generous again, wise, not foolishly, is a way of rejecting the world. I'd also like to say one more thing. Maybe it's the most controversial, uh, but still, let's mention it. And that is, in Matthew, maybe I'll mention two more things. Why not? I'd like to remind you Let me just remind you of these in Mark's gospel. When Jesus meets the rich young ruler, and he says to the rich young ruler, give everything. Of course, the rich young ruler says, you know, the the rich man says, I keep the commandments, which, by the way, is not impossible to do. So Jesus says, fine, but just one more thing that's missing. And he said, um, then Jesus, looking at him, said, Uh, looking at him, loved him. Jesus loved this guy to tell him something that was unpopular. Today, if you tell somebody something unpopular, you don't love them. And you have some kind of a phobia of one kind or another. Okay? But Jesus doesn't shrink back. And he says, one thing you lack, go and sell whatever you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Jesus affirms this Jewish idea of having treasure in heaven, okay? And take up your cross and follow me. That generosity and giving is an essential part of being a disciple. If you want to talk about discipleship, we talk about, uh, what do we talk about? Bible memorization, attending church meetings, um, memorizing scripture, whatever, praying, But an essential part of what it means to be a disciple is to be generous and to give. And by the way, discipleship is not a program. It's a person. It's being in relationship with a person. Now, where do we encounter Jesus? Where do we encounter the Lord? And there are a number of places, especially in Matthew's gospel, that Jesus talks about Emmanuel, God with us. For example, when we, in chapter 18, when we are working towards peace and reconciliation in the community, in the body of believers, Jesus says, if two or three are gathered, I'm going to be together with that effort. I don't know this is a, something general. We often take it out of its context. 
But Jesus says where there's going to be peace uh, and reconciliation between brothers, people who are making those efforts, I'm going to be in the middle of those efforts, you know, uh, bringing about the healing or the repair of these relationships. Or, for example, Jesus says when you, he says, go, go into all the nations and preach the gospel. And I, you know, Jesus says, I will never forsake you or I'll never leave you. Now, that's a beautiful promise. I'm sure it's true in all circumstances, but it especially pl- applies for those who are going out, actually not, not preaching the gospel, for making disciples. Where there is discipleship making, Jesus is going to be present with us. Okay? But interesting, where else do we encounter the presence of the Lord? We encounter the presence of the Lord, I'm sorry if I offend your theology, but most Christians believe in one form or another, we, account, we encounter Jesus at this table. Okay? In the Anglican tradition, we don't want to describe how it happens. We only say it's a mystery. So we're not talking about transubstantiation. We just know that if you come to this table in faith, okay, expecting to meet Jesus, you meet Jesus. And this, by the way, is more and more Protestants who, who objected to this way of thinking are coming around to this way of thinking, and it's almost becoming, you might say, almost getting close to becoming a universal consensus within Christianity, even Pentecostals. Okay. But where else do we find Jesus? Is it not true in Matthew 25? What does Jesus say to us? He says, if you're going to feed the poor, you're doing it to me. If you're visiting someone in prison, you're doing it for me. If you're clothing the naked, you're doing it not even for me, you're doing it to me, to me. Brothers and sisters, could it be true? Could it not be true, I should say, that we encounter Jesus when we encounter the poor? Not that I'm saying they're saved, or they're righteous, or they're going to heaven, or they're holy. By the way, we encounter Jesus in the church. And there's lots of bad things that happen in a church amongst the Lord's people. Yes. But still, is it not possible that especially when we give to the poor, help the poor, that actually we're doing it to the Lord? And I'm not just talking about handing someone 20 shekels on the street which actually could be dangerous. But investing in their lives and caring for those who are weak and vulnerable and desperate, actually, wouldn't we be doing ourselves a favor of coming into a closer and more intimate relationship with Jesus? More than just a social program. And this is not the social gospel. It's the gospel of Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that um, Cornelius and um, Tabitha will be our examples. We pray that we'll be rich in good deeds. We indeed pray that you will reward us um, by meeting our needs, by filling us full of your spirit, uh, Lord, by protecting us and keeping us safe. Lord, we ask that uh, you would help each one of us.
to determine in our heart what you want us to give and how you want us to give to those who need you. And we pray, Lord, that as we do so, you would indeed make yourself present and make yourself known to all of us. We ask this in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page or leaving a review in iTunes. You can offer practical support to Christ Church Jerusalem by clicking the Donate Now button on our Facebook page. Thank you and blessings from the City of the King.